I actually think when Stacey Abrams immediately endorsed Senator Manchin's proposal, it became the Stacey Abrams substitute, not the Joe Manchin substitute. You gotta be kidding me. Enough already. From Pacifica Radio, this is the broadcast, as heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in Los Angeles, elsewhere in California on KFOI Red Bluff Redding, KKRN Round Mountain, KGOE Eureka in Oregon, on KYAQ on the Central Coast, KSO in Cottage Grove, KEPW in Eugene, in Lancaster, Pennsylvania, WLRI, Maui, Hawaii, KAKU, Columbus, Ohio, WGRN, Palinville, New York, WLPP, Rochester, New York, WRFZ, in New Orleans, Louisiana, WHIV, Gallup, New Mexico, KNIZ, Concord, New Hampshire, WNHN, Fayetteville, Arkansas, KPSQ, Seattle, Washington, KODX, Janesville, Wisconsin, WADR, Minneapolis, St. Paul, AM 950, KTNF, and coast to coast and around the globe, streaming on the internets on the Progressive Voices Channel, Netroots Radio, Radio for Humans, FYI Nation, NicoleSandler.com, Radio Free Brooklyn, Workforce Rising, No Lies Radio, Verdon Square Radio, and Detour Talk. Blanketing the globe five days a week, usually hosted by Brad Friedman of Bradblog.com, but Well, he had some stuff to take care of today, so you got me again. I'm Nicole Sandler, host of The Nicole Sandler Show, based at NicoleSandler.com, and your trusted guest host when Brad and Desi come calling. Today, we've got a lot of news to cover. I I saw a story last night on CNN about the Cyber Ninjas. That's the firm, but it's not really a firm, uh, that is running the fraudit the so-called audit of the votes that's been going on in Arizona. And it blew my mind. So I will share that with you a little later in the hour. Coming up in a few minutes, we're going to talk to an old, well, friend of the show. You know, I don't think Brad was doing a daily show back when Dennis Kucinich was in Congress, but I certainly was. And he was a regular guest of mine back then. And now he's got a new book out and um, some other exciting things going on. So A little later in the hour, we'll be joined by Congressman Dennis Kucinich. But first, let's get to some of the news, because there's a lot going on. Now, I know Brad went over the Supreme Court decisions that were announced yesterday, but let me give you a quick rundown anyway, in case someone missed something. So the Supreme Court term generally ends at the end of June. Well, here we are. (laughs) There's not much time left, and... There's uh, still still 15 cases to be decided or to be announced. On Thursday, they gave us three opinions. They began with the biggest of the bunch, upholding the Affordable Care Act. For the third time, the Supreme Court ruled 7-2 that the 18 Republican-led states who brought this suit lacked legal standing to try to overturn the law. The 17 states that joined Texas argued that Congress's 2017 decision to remove the so-called individual mandate rendered the entire law unconstitutional. A decision in their favor would have resulted in 
eliminating the law and all the popular provisions that includes like coverage for pre-existing conditions. But Justice Stephen Breyer wrote for the majority that the state's lawsuit was improper because the plaintiffs couldn't trace a legal injury to the individual mandate. Thus, they lacked standing. President Biden called the decision a major victory for all Americans benefiting from this groundbreaking and life-changing law, and he brought back memories of the day the bill passed by referring to it as a BFD, something he said in its full form to the then-President Barack Obama after the passage. In another consequential case, the Supremes ruled unanimously that a Catholic foster care agency in Philadelphia could reject gay and lesbian couples as clients in a case that pitted LGBTQ rights against the First Amendment's protection of actions reflecting religious beliefs. Chief Justice John Roberts wrote the opinion, saying that the Catholic agency quote, seeks only an accommodation that will allow it to continue serving the children of Philadelphia in a manner consistent with its religious beliefs. It does not seek to impose those beliefs on anyone else. He continued the refusal of Philadelphia to contract with CSS for the provision of foster care services unless it agrees to certify same-sex couples as foster parents violates the First Amendment. This decision marked the most significant defeat for gay rights activists since the court's 2018 ruling in favor of that Colorado baker who refused to make a wedding cake for a same-sex couple. And the fact that this was unanimous, kind of disturbing. As was the third decision, frankly, Supreme Court ruled against six former child slaves from Mali in West Africa who sued food companies Nestle and Cargill, accusing them of perpetuating illegal working conditions in the global chocolate industry. The plaintiffs said in the 15-year-old lawsuit that they were trafficked to cocoa plantations in the Ivory Coast and forced to work. They said the company's pressure to keep down cocoa prices fueled a system that relied on enslaved children on cocoa farms in Ivory Coast and Ghana. Clarence Thomas, writing for the court, wrote that the plaintiffs couldn't sue because the actions took place in Ivory Coast, not the United States. There are 15 cases left. We'll get the next decisions from the court Monday morning, beginning at 10 Eastern. In other news, happy Juneteenth. President Biden on Thursday signed a bill establishing Juneteenth, June 19th, as a federal holiday commemorating the end of slavery, calling it a day of profound weight and profound power. June 19th, 1865 was the day when Union Major General Gordon Granger brought the news of President Lincoln's 1863 Emancipation Proclamation to Texas, where nobody bothered to inform the now freed slaves that they had indeed been freed. The Office of Personnel Management announced that most federal employees would have the day off on Friday this year, since Juneteenth falls on Saturday. Juneteenth is the first federal holiday created since Martin Luther King Jr. Day was recognized as a holiday back in 1983. Well, Congress has a lot on their plates these days, like the fate of the For the People Act. Unfortunately, Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell is now again guaranteeing that Republicans will filibuster the bill that Chuck Schumer is sending to the floor on Tuesday. The only remaining question seems to be whether all 50 Democratic senators will unite in support of opening debate on the bill and then how they'll react when Republicans once again block it. Senator Joe Manchin, the thorn in the Democrat side, 
issued a memo this week saying what provisions he would support and basically telling the Democrats what they needed to do to the bill in order to get his vote. Stacey Abrams, in an interview, said that she could go for that. She could accept Manchin's suggestions. The perfect way to sum up what today's Republican Party is all about comes in their response. A bit of background first. In a leaked Zoom call released by The Intercept, we heard Joe Manchin suggest to the obscenely wealthy donors on the call that they offer outgoing Senator Roy Blunt of Missouri future income streams as a way to get him to support the idea of a January 6th commission and at the same time keep the filibuster going. In that call, you hear Joe Manchin say, quote, Roy Blunt is a great, just a good friend of mine, a great guy. Well, Blunt showed what a good friend he is by responding to that news item saying, I think every one of us looks for opportunities to work with Senator Manchin, and we found those opportunities. I actually think when Stacey Abrams immediately endorsed Senator Manchin's proposal, it became the Stacey Abrams substitute, not the Joe Manchin substitute. When will the Democrats get the message? Republicans are not playing ball here. They're just not into you. And I don't want you to think we're going to get through the news without another shooting. This time, one person was killed, 12 others injured in eight drive-by shootings over a 90-minute spree near Phoenix on Thursday. A suspect has been arrested. Police say the first shooting occurred at about 11.10 a.m. in Peoria, with a suspect arrested during a traffic stop in the town of Surprise after 12.40 p.m. A gun was found in his car. Four of the people wounded had gunshot wounds. The others were injured by broken glass or shrapnel. Investigators couldn't immediately determine a motive for the shootings, but they didn't think it was road rage. Just incredible. And how about this? Remember Mark and Patricia McCluskey? As a group of peaceful Black Lives Matter protesters were marching past their Missouri mansion last June 28th, they emerged from their home with guns drawn and aimed at the marchers. They later claimed that the protesters were trespassing by entering their gated private street. Well, they both pleaded guilty. He to fourth-degree assault, she to second-degree harassment. They'll pay fines of $750 and $2,000, respectively, and they must surrender their guns to be destroyed. Imagine that. And finally, didn't Obama know something was up with this guy? I'm talking about Dr. Ronnie Jackson, now Congressman Ronnie Jackson from Texas. He was Trump's White House physician who shared the results of Trump's first physical in office, claiming that he has great genes, that he told the president that if he had a healthier diet, he might live to be 200 years old. And oh, yeah, claimed that Trump weighed 239 pounds. Yeah, that guy. Well, he wrote a letter signed by 13 other Republican lawmakers asking Joe Biden to take a cognitive test. The Daily Coast David Neur points out, though, that the lawmakers had their own mental lapse in drafting the letter, repeating a line almost verbatim about the president's alleged forgetfulness. The letter reads, quote, Unfortunately, your forgetfulness and cognitive difficulties have been prominently on display over the past year. The next sentence says, Unfortunately, your mental decline and forgetfulness have become more apparent over the past 18 months. Someone get Ronnie Jackson a mirror, please.
I think now is a good time to take a break. (laughs) So we'll get back to the news a little later in the hour. Coming up next, though, my conversation after many years with Dennis Kucinich, former congressman, former mayor of Cleveland, and perhaps future mayor of Cleveland? Don't go away. I'm Nicole Sandler, your guest host today on the broadcast. Hey, this is Brad. If you haven't noticed by now, it's no easy feat finding facts, real facts, not alternative facts, over your public airwaves. We try to bring you real facts, truth, and clarity without fear or favor each and every day on the broadcast. But we need your help to do it. If you enjoy the show and or get something from it, please give back a bit, if you can, by visiting us at bradblog.com donate. Your support helps Desi and me continue to bring you real, independent, progressive news five days a week over your public airwaves. We simply can't do it without your help, and that help is needed more now than ever. Please stop by bradblog.com donate today to make a one-time donation or, even better, automated monthly support. It'll take you about 60 seconds, and you can rest easy knowing that we'll be here every day making sense of it all, or at least trying to. That's bradblog.com slash donate, and thanks. Welcome back to the broadcast. I'm Nicole Sandler, your guest host today, and I'm excited to bring you this next interview because it's with someone who used to come on my show fairly regularly, and oh, it's been almost 10 years, but he's coming back. He's got a new book and possibly another important announcement to make. Congressman Dennis Kucinich, welcome, welcome back to the program. Hi there. Thank you very much, uh, Nicole. It's uh, good to be with you again. It's been a while. It's been a, been a long time. In fact, I pulled out um, a, a, photo, a couple of photos from the last time I saw you, which I believe was 2008. And I, wow. had, I had my little daughter with me, who is now 22, but at the time was about eight or nine years old. You were down here in Florida campaigning, hoping to win the Democratic nomination for uh, the 2008 presidential election. Right. Uh, right. So it has been a while. And then uh, we spoke throughout the years uh, during the days I was on Air America Radio. And I looked back through my stuff and it seems like the last time we spoke was 2012. And, and that was your last year in Congress, right? Uh, that was my last year. Well, I, I finished my term on January the 3rd, 2013. Right. Well, it is nice to see you and nice to hear from you again. And the the reason that you're here today is your new book called The Division of Light and Power. And when I first saw it, I thought, oh, I I guess it's like a spiritual thing because I had forgotten the story of your time as mayor of Cleveland. And that's what this book is all about. It's a big book covering a two-year stretch, but why don't you tell us the, the basic story of what you tell in, in the book in much more detail? Right. Uh, well, it, it's uh, a book not only for yesterday's Cleveland, but the context of it is relevant for today. This is about corporate espionage and corporate sabotage and 
price fixing and an attempt to usurp a, a municipal government by interest groups who had their own narrow concerns and not the broad-based concerns of the people. It's about uh, and, and a relentless effort to try to steal from the people of Cleveland their municipal electric system and about the role that I played as a councilman and later on as mayor to stop that from happening and the consequences that came as a result of that involved uh, dealing with organized crime, assassination plots. I mean, this book has it all and it, uh, uh, it's nice to be able to talk about it retrospectively, but the core of the book raises the question about who's making this decisions in any community, who's in charge. I, I, I say City Hall is not just a building on 6th and Lakeside in Cleveland, it's the boardroom of the banks, the real estate combines, utility monopolies, and, and the mob. And every city has their own centers of power, but people aren't always aware of it. So this book is, is really a tutorial on, on, uh, on government and how to understand the different layers that are there and how to access levers of power. Yes. And in fact, the prologue is wonderful. It's just two short paragraphs. If you don't mind, I want to read it. You wrote, Please do. people who say you can't fight City Hall don't know where it is. You have to find it before you can fight it. City Hall was not only the Doric Gray Temple, uh, Stone Temple on East 6th and Lakeside Avenue in downtown Cleveland. City Hall was the boardroom of Cleveland's banks, its investor-owned utilities, its real estate combines, and the mob. In Cleveland, City Hall was in the shadows, a giant specter invisible to the people of the city. I brought the invisible City Hall to light with great consequences for my city, my family, my friends, and myself. I was the mayor, and I fought City Hall. I see that as the opening to the movie. So have the movie rights been optioned yet? I've had people express uh, interest, but you know, right now I'm just focused on calling attention to the book. Gotcha. You know, it's written, it's written in a way, you know, the way that I write, I try to be as descriptive as possible and bring the reader right into the action and then move along with me through it. Uh, and everything in the book, Nicole, is documented. I spent a considerable amount of time making sure that every claim that was in there can be backed up by several sources. And you've got and them it, all here. It's all, I mean, the whole back end of the book. I mean, the book is, um, it's 600 and what I'm looking at, 58 pages or so. But you start with the end notes at 568, and that's after your glossary. So this is well-documented and footnoted. Well, I also want to say that uh, as a means of trying to help the reader get more information, for those who buy the book, they'll have access to the Division of uh, Light and Power Archives, mm. which has the entire uh, federal filings, the antitrust case uh, uh, filings and, you know, thousands of more pages that wouldn't have been practical to put into the book itself. Now, I got to ask you, so you left the office of mayor of Cleveland in 1979. That's over 40 years ago. Why just come out with this book now? Because <laughs> it took me 40 years <laughs> to write. I mean, really, I mean, I, I, I tried to write it immediately, but I was too close to the story. Oh. And, um, uh, you know, and I, uh, and in, in the early 80s, by the way, I had a meeting with Marty Bregman, who did Serpico and Al Pacino hmm. for, you know, four hours in New York City. Right. And they wanted to do a movie. But I, I was too close to it to try to describe what happened. And over the years, 
I've uh, made one try after another. The book that uh, you have there is represents the seventh draft. Wow. So, so you know, I mean, I, I would write something, wasn't satisfied with it, just start over, start over, start over. And yeah, it took me years to be able to get to that point. And then once I, I was satisfied, then I had to, at the same time, do all the documentation, which took quite a while as well. So yeah, this is the product of, uh, of many, many years of work. When I was in Congress, I set it aside. And uh, when I left Congress, I started on it. And in 2018, I just, it was a three-year sprint. And finally, here you it's are. Done. Here you are. Well, Dennis, I was I was actually telling the listeners the first time I heard of you was before I got into talk radio, into political talk radio, I did music radio, and I was working at a station in Boston, and a story, this was 2004, so it was your first presidential run, and a story crossed the wire of you You were, you know, running, and you, there was a contest to for a woman to have dinner with you, to meet a day, and you, that stuck with me all these years, and then, of course, many years later, <clears throat> you married your current wife, Elizabeth, who um, is just an amazing woman from all we know. But but funny that that's my first memory of you. That has nothing to do with politics, but that well, date you know, contest. It's, it's, it's interesting because I started that campaign as a, as a bachelor. And, uh, you know, when I met Elizabeth, that campaign was over. And uh-huh. I, I, I was actually not expecting uh, to be with anybody. But, you know, I was looking, but you know, a national campaign really isn't the right time to find. No, uh, love, you want to right? With. Not, not, but then, you know, 2005, I, I met Elizabeth. I had a friend of mine, Ravi Shankar. Uh, Shri oh, sure. Shri, Ravi Shankar. Of course. He, I went, I saw him, he visited Washington. I saw him, I said, hey, uh, you know, I, I, I've been looking to have somebody in my life. And, you know, I, I looked all over the country. I haven't found her. <laughs> His response was, stop looking and she will oh, appear uh-huh. so i said okay i'll do that and that afternoon elizabeth walked through the door <laughs> wow and many years later you guys are still going strong yes that's oh yeah knock on uh, wood laminate here good for you so um in the years since you left congress uh, 2013, January of 2013, your term ended. Um, we didn't hear much from you, and maybe that's because you signed on to Fox as a as a contributor. Um, my television just doesn't go there. Few times I've tried. If I keep it on, I'm going to wind up breaking the TV, and I can't afford a new one. So, what made you decide to go to Fox? Was it to to talk some sense into them, or what was that experience like? It was it was uh, a good experience because. I was asked to join Fox by Roger Ailes. Okay. And Roger called me and he says, we have nothing in common. But he said, I think you're honest. And I think that it's important to have your point of view on our network. And it, one, one incident that, that happened, like early on, um, I've never told this before, but it's worth repeating. One of my first shows, I had a guy on who, who red baited me, okay? And Ailes found out about it. And he basically read everybody the riot act. You know, he basically said, this happens again. And there's, you know, people are going to be out of here. So he, he really felt very strongly about the importance of the voice that I presented, which was different than the rest of, uh, of the Fox uh, family. And I was treated with respect there. And, uh, uh, and people listened to what I had to say. And not once did anybody ever suggest to me, well, 
you know, you should say this or that. That never happened. It was, I had total freedom with whatever I wanted to say. And it, it couldn't have been any other way, but it's noteworthy that I did. Right. But did, did, were you, I, and again, I apologize because I didn't see any of your segments there. Um, were you on with the likes of Bill O'Reilly and Sean Hannity? And I mean, I, I was, just. I, I know every one of those individuals who's right? on the show, you know, and sometimes we went at it. Uh, but I, I, you know, I was there to present my view, not to parrot anyone else. Sure. And so um, whoever I was on with, whether it was Sean Hannity or Bill O'Reilly or Carl Rove or <laughs> any of the any of the people who were on the show, I, uh, you know, we 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 presented our different views, and I was mm-hmm. very firm about the position that I took on things, and it was always respectful. And I and let me just say something, Nicole. You know, if you don't reach out to people, how do you change their minds? Right. If if, if people aren't exposed to different points of view, uh. Nothing changes. And I'm not into a polarized thinking. Mm-hmm. You know, my book, by the way, the book that I've written represents um, a, a very straightforward story without embellishment, without trying to. It's not about left or right. right. No, this is not that at all. This is not about partisan politics. This is this is about right, right and wrong. Right. Thank you. That's that's exactly mm-hmm. that's exactly right. And so I'm. Um, uh, you know, it, and it's important to to have mutual respect with people. You have to establish that. I, I once, couldn't. I couldn't agree once, more. Right. You know, once you establish Nicole, once you establish, uh, uh, you know, mutuality there, then you build trust. And and you know, I think it's possible to have diametrically opposed views from somebody, but still be able to have communication with them. Sure. And not not shut them down and they not shut you down. Now it's a little bit tougher these days, it right. seems. Okay. But, but I've tried to, I tried to steer that path when I was on, uh, I tried to steer that path when I was on the network. Right. And I don't disagree with going on there. You know, some, some people on the left freaked out when Bernie Sanders did a town hall with Fox. I think it's great. Let them hear what we're thinking. The problem I have is the lack of respect that I see coming back from them. And today, I can't see Tucker Carlson giving you the same kind of maybe respect that you got from some of the people you dealt with a few years back. Well, Um, I will say this. You know, I mean, I'm not having been on a show in years, but I don't have any doubt at all. If uh, I was invited on, I'd be treated with respect. hmm. I mean, he and I have known each other. It's not like... We, we have we have different points of view, mm-hmm. and it's important to to start out with that respect, and then you talk about whatever you want to talk about. Right. I, don't, I don't have any problem there. Oh, good. I mean, to me, to me again, you know, this book is is really um, about how someone can take a stand on behalf of the people without entering into discussion about who's a Democrat, who's a Republican, mm-hmm. who's liberal, who's conservative. Uh, you said it a moment ago; it's about right or wrong. That's right. And and that's kind of the territory that I, you know, stake stake my claim on for the division of light and power. Right. I'm going to give you a song to listen to. It's it's many, many years old. It's by an artist named Joe Jackson. I used to use it as my theme song, but because I'm on YouTube and stuff, I can't play music anymore because they copyright violate me. But it's called Right and Wrong. And it's 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 about that. He says, I'm not talking about right and left. I'm talking about right and wrong. You would love it. So you, you should go check it out. Joe Jackson. 
right and right. It's kind of an obscure song, but it's great. So you you can't play it now. I can't play it now because I'd get copyright violated. Because we need, we, I miss having you in Congress because you were, um, you know, here, I'm going to go with the left-right thing again, but you were decidedly further to the left than most of even the Democratic caucus. You used to talk a lot about the need for a Department of Peace instead of, you know, what it used to be, the Department of War, now the Department of Defense. Why don't we think in those terms? I would love someone to get on the subject of media because it's so fragmented now. Back in the old days when I started in radio, there was no such thing as conservative talk radio and progressive talk radio. There was talk radio. And you would hear all the voices on the same station, so you would get exposed to it all. And guess what? Both sides would talk to each other. It doesn't happen anymore. Well, let me go back to the book. Yep. Um, when I was elected mayor, mm-hmm. I, I, I defeated both the Democratic and the Republican parties. I, and that was no small matter because the Democrats had a real machine mm-hmm. and Republicans had a lot of, you know, uh, establishment institutional support. But the the independent path that I that I have taken is as an independent thinker. Now, somebody can say, well, you know, uh, um, Washington Post wrote a few years ago, they said that that what I represented was the future of American politics. And I hope that's true. I hope that people can can take, you know, can take positions without respect to political party, can do what they feel is right for the American people without having to score partisan points. Because, frankly, I can't to me, the, the idea that there's only one way of looking at the world mm-hmm. and you got to see it through a partisan lens. Come on. I mean, that that never made sense to me ever. Well, you know, I always say I'd be happy to debate a Republican, somebody who has a a diametrically opposed viewpoint. The problem, though, today in 2021 is, you know, they they're the lies. I mean, they're lying about everything going back to the last election, going back to I mean, everything. And, you know, there have to be ground rules for any debate where you have to stipulate to the facts. They won't stipulate to the fact that the sky is blue and the grass is green. So I can't have an intelligence conversation with anybody who won't agree on the basic facts. They're still insisting that the election was stolen. I mean, how do you deal with something like that? Well, I think it's important to be able to know why people think that way. I, I, you know, I have my own ideas about elections. So one of the things in my own book, at the beginning of the book, I talk about how an election, my first, when I was elected in 69, how that election was almost stolen. Hmm. So elections can be stolen. Oh, they can be. I think that, you know, we, you're right. We have to try to establish a common ground of meaning. Yes. And where you start, you first, you start with mutual respect and then you build the trust. And then you start talking and and we, we need to talk to each other, not past each other. Uh, you know, I can I, I have the same sense of uh, I feel the same sense of pain that you do about things that are so polarized today that it's difficult to have any communication. And yet the country cannot uh, exist without people talking to one another. And we're really in a quandary right now. Yeah. And one of the things that I hope my book will do is to be able to show that, you know, government can work, uh, what the interest groups are, whatever, whether it's a Democrat or Republican in charge, and how citizens 
can get their voices heard and, and, and create an opening and enter into uh, the discussion. Because uh, those who are holding office, they're not the only ones entitled to a point of view about current events. No. And, and so I, I've, uh, in the book, I have many examples of, of, of standing up and speaking out when, you know, not by invitation, because if you're going to get involved, you can't wait to be invited. That's one of the messages. Mm-hmm. And being ready and know what you're talking about and be ready to stand up and speak out uh, without regard to political party, ideology or anything like that. So, you know, the book is essentially a non-ideological book, if that's possible. It is not partisan. Right. Uh, it is, right. Uh, it, it, you know, the division of light and power is about crony capitalism on one level. It's about uh, uh, it, it, it's about some some elemental positions about what's right and what's not. Right. And now. It, now, now, all the um, officials in Ohio and everybody in retrospect looks back on your standing up <clears throat> to this, you know, the, the desire they wanted to sell this public uh, service to a private company. They wanted to privatize it. And you, as the youngest mayor of a major city, you said no. And you really stood your ground and didn't let it happen. And they fought you at the time. Now they're all applauding you for it, going, that was so great. It was the right thing to do. Um, but I guess they weren't there at the time. Now, in 79, when you left office, was that by choice? Or were you voted no, out? No, what happened. You know, I, the people of Cleveland, I went to them in December of, um, uh, of uh, 1978, and I said, look, uh, I basically had to deal with the banks. The bank said that if the people passed an income tax, uh, they would take the city out of default. We'd use the money to pay off the defaulted notes on loans I hadn't even taken out. They were taken out by my Republican predecessor. Mm. So the banks said, okay, you go along with that. I, I then uh, uh, decided with the help of my then wife that I would take the issue of muni to the people and put that on the ballot. So no one thought we had a chance to win this, but Long story short, we passed the tax to mm-hmm. pay off the defaulted note yeah. so we could get out of default. And we passed the muni light issue by both by a margin of two to one that was beyond anyone's understanding. Well. Guess what happened? The banks reneged on their promise <gasps> to take the city out of default. They kept the city out of, uh, into default until I left office. And they and the utility and the business establishment continued to demand that I sell an electric system that the people approved keeping by a two to one margin. Wow. I mean, this is the, the level of corruption that existed at this time is, is beyond what anyone. And the line dropped. We lost Dennis Kucinich, but I had faith. I just waited a couple of minutes and sure enough, you're back with us. I thought we had lost you. Uh, welcome back, sir. Thank you. Uh, so, so what I was going to ask you next is, we're talking about uh, your time as mayor of Cleveland. Are you running again? Well, there's a talk to that effect, but I haven't really announced anything. And, you know, it's a little bit early to do that. I'm first trying to get this book out. <laughs> gotcha. uh, one thing I want to make clear, Nicole, is, you know, some people are saying, well, is this a campaign book? Yeah, maybe for 1980. <laughs> right. You, you know, you, you can't plan. I didn't know when I finished the book. It took me years to be able to uh, to finish it. So there is a filing deadline coming up on the 16th of June. Mm-hmm. 
And all I can tell you, Nicole, is just stay tuned. <laughs> okay. Because I thought I read somewhere that you did the initial filing of the paperwork in December. You did read that. It was to uh, file a committee to receive money. But okay. you have to do that to be able to raise funds. But that's different than actually filing petitions to run. You need sure. 3,000 good signatures. And, uh, and the filing deadline is on the 16th of June. And again, uh, thanks for asking. <laughs> Please stay tuned. Okay. Uh, so I'll leave it there and maybe we can re- reconnect. Now I got to ask you another question. I also read that you, after Donald Trump's inaugural inauguration, that you congratulated him on the American carnage speech. Is that, did you, you thought that was a good speech? No, I congratulated him for taking a stand on behalf of uh, fair trade. You have to remember that in Cleveland, our industries here have been wiped out by NAFTA and by China trade. Mm-hmm. And, and, and the president, you know, and I think that whoever the, becomes the president should be accorded a chance to do something for the country. Right. And, you know, I mean, I've, I, every president, Democrat or Republican who's been elected in my time, I've sent congratulatory notes over. Uh, that doesn't, you know, I did the same thing for, George Bush, and I put articles of impeachment up on <laughs> yes, him. Yes, you did. Very famously. So yes, you did. Not like I'm you know, uh, going to be a sucker for anything mm-hmm. that comes down the pike. So I, I, um, I, I did it as a gesture of goodwill. I mean, you know, America uh, has to try to bind up the country's wounds. Right. And if you don't, if you don't do that, we, re- we, we remain forever divided. And I, I do think it's true that a house divided against itself cannot stand. And right now, We're we divided. are divided against ourselves. And I'm not, you know, that's not the territory that I, I want to uh, uh, do my work in, to dwell in. I want to try to see how you can um, bring people together. Uh, but I have never failed to challenge anybody who's, you know, if they were doing something that I that I didn't agree with. Right. And, you know, my, uh, and that's a Democrat or Republican. Right. Did did you oppose? I mean, you, you even brought up, you did file impeachment articles against George W. Bush. Were you against the impeachment of Donald Trump? Look, I think every president has to be held accountable. Mm-hmm. I mean, to, to me, you know, look, especially when you're a member of Congress, you're, you're co-equal branch of government. Right. You, you can't, uh, you, you know, we don't, we don't elect kings. Every president must be held accountable. And it was not personal. I'll tell mm-hmm. you a story, you know. I was in Congress and, uh, you know, two months after the impeachment, uh, George uh, Bush walked past me uh, speaking, you know, addressing the Congress, came by me um, and I, I leaned over and I, I said something to him. He stopped in his tracks and he turned back towards me and says, well, what'd you say, Dennis? And I said, uh, Mr. President, I wish you peace. Nice. If, if you can't address the humanity of another person mm-hmm. and, 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 and his composure changed dramatically. And he said, you know, he said, thank you, Dennis. He says, I know that you mean that. And I did. And so, you know, you, if it's all about trying to get partisan advantage and, you know, taking a sort out and running it through a guy, oh, how dismal that is. And so even George Bush, who, yes, I put up articles of impeachment, Sit on the floor of the house four and a half hours I reading remember. those articles. I remember. And and I and you know at the same time, that was my obligation as a member of Congress to stand up for the Constitution, right. 
but it, it was not personal. I mean, I actually had a pretty good relationship with him until that time. Gotcha. But, and, but, but the question I was asking is, you don't think that Donald Trump was, I mean, deserved uh, to be impeached? Look, the way, look the, way the, the way the Trump administration operated isn't anything I would right. agree with. I would, I would have probably spent a lot of time on the floor of the House uh, <laughs> challenging uh, them one day after the other. But you weren't if there. I did it, it wouldn't be as a partisan. Right. Gotcha. It would be as someone who loves America and says, well, let's try this approach. I'm not interested in beating people up. You know, it's like defend the Constitution, do what's right for the American people, and uh, and don't worry if you're going to work with Democrats or Republicans because America has to be able to um, uh, work together. I, I would often tell my colleagues on both sides of the aisle, I point to the American Eagle above the chambers of the House of Representatives. I said, you see that eagle? It needs two wings to fly. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and America cannot uh, operate just from one partisan perspective. And, and it's very difficult now to negotiate that territory because there is so much partisan hostility and rancor. But the thing that I've always tried to do is to find a way to, to address people at a personal level, to find what our commonalities are, and then see if we might come to an agreement on something. And as a result, I was able to work with people on both sides of the aisle. And sometimes it had a real powerful impact. How about coming back to Congress to try to negotiate peace? Because it's kind of ugly right now. I, I, I'll tell you, I've talked to my friends on both sides of the aisle. And they're, they're really dispirited. They're saddened. I'll bet. By the constant bombardment back and forth. That's horrible. Look, you can't, you know, we're all Americans and we shouldn't forget that. I mean, if we're united by love of country, then let us then let us be united in that love of country and find that that's a good place to start. Uh, yep. You know, Most we're definitely. one family. And, and when we forget that and we treat each other as enemies, oh, my, we're fracturing our country. Yeah, we are. And that's where we are now. And I and I, you know, the book uh, uh, is, go, is a straightforward approach to how. Uh, how we can navigate territory when these corporate interests are playing people off against each other and how important it is to take a stand when that happens. Got it. I mean, I think anybody who reads the book is going to be shocked at what happened back then, but what's past is prologue. Mm -hmm. If you look, there are there's other things that are going on in every city. The centers of power, people are not always aware of who makes the decisions. They take for granted it's the person sitting in that Mayor's chair, mm. not necessarily so. Right. Uh, the book is The Division of Light and Power, Dennis J. Kucinich. It is available now. Dennis, it's so nice to see you again. Thank you for joining us. And, and I hope if you do decide to run and uh, stay in the public eye, that you'll come back and visit with us again. Well, you know, I'd like to, uh, in any event, do that, Nicole. And, I would love and that. Thanks for paying such careful attention to these themes. And, you know, let's... Uh, I, I'm, I'm hopeful our country's going to get through this time without uh, any more damage. But you and me both. So I recorded that interview with Dennis Kucinich last Monday. That's when he was on my show. This past Monday, he made it official. Here's News 5 Cleveland with the report. 
He's the politician with one of the longest-running stories in Ohio politics, and he's about to add another chapter. After flirting with the idea of running for Cleveland mayor, former mayor Dennis Kucinich just made it official. He is in. News 5's John Kosick is live in Tremont, where Kucinich just announced his run for mayor. Hey, John. That's right, and it's a position he first was elected to 44 years ago, looking to finish today what he started in 1977. As mayor, I will seek to unify our city by meeting the challenges to safety and security which exist in every neighborhood. Three days before the filing deadline, former Cleveland Mayor Dennis Kucinich announcing he would like to remove the word former from that title as he seeks election to the seat he first won in 1977. People have said again and again uh, that I was ahead of my time. Well, this is our time. This is the time for bold, visionary ideas that can transform our city. A bike riding Kucinich was still in college when he was elected to Cleveland City Council in 1969. After three terms, he'd be elected as the youngest mayor of a major city in 1977 at just 31. How are you doing? Nice to see you. Just came over to tell you I appreciate your support in tomorrow's election. His tenure was a brief and bumpy one as the city went into default as Kucinich refused pressure to sell Cleveland public power to pay down the debt. His actions leading to a failed recall effort in 1978 and defeat the next year to George Voinovich. We sacrificed the mayor's office because we refused to bow and serve the money power of this community. Battles he documents in his new book, The Division of Light and Power. He would serve 16 years in Congress and make two runs for president from his Cleveland base. As a result, News 5 political analyst Tom Sutton says he enters this race with a valuable asset, name recognition. The poll that BW did back in April showed him with 78% familiarity rating, and he came in first among the candidates as a choice for mayor at 18%, so there's room to move. And Sutton says the impact of the Kucinich campaign will be felt most on that of Kevin Kelly as they both run from that west side of Cleveland base. Now, like the other candidates in this race, he sees public safety as the number one issue, looking to add 400 new cops, buy two more police helicopters, and create a cabinet-level civic peace department. Live in Tremont, Chuck Hasek, News 5. Rob? I guess some things never change. He's still advocating for a peace department. I'm Nicole Sandler, your guest host today on the broadcast. Don't go away. There's more to come. Hey, this is Desi Doyen of the Green News Report and the broadcast. Did you know that we are completely listener supported? You can help us stay 100% independent over your public airwaves by going to bradblog.com donate. That's bradblog.com donate. And thanks. We live in a political world. Love don't have any place. We're living in times when men commit crimes and crime don't have a face. We live in a political world. Icicles hanging down. Wedding bells ringing, angels singing, clouds cover up the ground. I'm Nicole Sandler, in today for Brad and Desi. And I've got a couple more things to share before we're done for the day. I know that Brad does an amazing job covering election integrity issues, like almost no one else. But I don't think he's got this one yet. I saw this story on CNN last night, and I knew I had to share it with you. They decided to get to the bottom of the cyber ninjas. You've heard about the cyber ninjas, ostensibly a Florida company that was hired by the Arizona Senate Republicans to conduct yet another audit of the 2020 election in Maricopa County, that's Phoenix. 
You've heard all about this count and all the problems inherent in it. And, you know, the audit has been more accurately described as a fraud it. And that's not to say that if there was an actual legitimate audit being done, that that would be a bad thing. But this is not that. So CNN's Kin Lai went to Florida to find out more about the cyber ninjas. And here's her report. Why am I in this Sarasota, Florida business complex chasing an Arizona story? We're trying to talk to somebody about cyber ninjas. Cyber ninjas. That's the company hired to conduct the so-called audit in Arizona. It's the little known contractor claiming to be an election auditing firm carrying out this much disputed exercise in Maricopa County. The company is being paid 150,000 taxpayer dollars allocated by the Republican-controlled Arizona Senate. Cyber Ninjas is headquartered in Sarasota. So we flew the 2,000 miles to Florida. Our first stop, Cyber Ninjas Legal Department. Suite number 421. The office listed as a fourth floor suite is a rented mailbox inside a UPS store. To the state of Florida, Cyber Ninjas operates here but not really. Are you familiar with, with that? No, not. This is a registered agent company, a place that takes official mail and calls. They list this as their office. I know, but if, if they're one of our clients, I can't get any information. We find one other address that Cyber Ninjas used to get a $98,000 PPP loan from the federal government last year. There's nothing inside. Cyber Ninjas left a month after the November 2020 election. Thank you for calling Cyber Ninjas. No one ever answers the official business phone number. Press three. And every extension you press, press four. Press five. Gets you to only press one ninja. Please leave a message for Doug Logan. Doug Logan. Doug Logan. Doug Logan is the CEO of Cyber Ninjas. He's led Pennsylvania legislators through the audit floor. Lawmakers from a dozen other states have followed. Logan oversees the daily process of this exercise. But there's a major problem, says Tony Summerlin, who has known Logan for 15 years working together in cyber technology. He has absolutely no background or skills in the area. He's very smart, but doing an election audit is not the same as doing a cyber audit. He's gone way beyond studying a machine software. Summerlin says he tried to talk Logan out of the Arizona audit. It scares me that someone that thoughtful, that nice and that bright would fall into this pit. The pit, says Summerlin, includes what the Daily Beast and the Arizona Mirror dug up. Logan's now deleted conspiratorial tweets and retweets about a stolen election. Logan also told the Arizona Mirror he wrote this document riddled with lies, like voting machines tied to Venezuela's Hugo Chavez, who, by the way, died eight years ago. I either I laugh or I cry, depending on the day. Um, um, mostly laugh just because that's my personality. It's a disappointing. It's all just disappointing. Stephen Richer is the Republican Maricopa County recorder who, along with the Board of Supervisors, was subpoenaed by the Senate to hand over the 2020 ballots. Nobody could have said, oh, that's the group we're going to go with. That's just facially absurd. And so you have to start say, asking, well, why did they choose that group? Is it because did they choose this group because they knew that they would placate very specific actors that are connected to the Stop the Steal movement? Did they choose this group because they knew they would provide the results they want? Logan never did call us back to answer those questions, but he has defended himself in his one and only public press conference. 
I know you guys want to paint me as like some bad guy in here. I'm involved in this and putting everything on the line with my company because I care about our country. Otherwise, who would be stupid enough to walk into this? Every individual that walks into any election integrity thing gets butchered by everybody. Astounding, right? Not surprising, but shocking nonetheless. Amazing. I have another piece to share with you. This one comes courtesy of The Daily Show. Now, this past week, we saw President Biden take his first overseas trip, which culminated with a Biden-Putin summit in Switzerland. Now, by all reports, Biden did pretty well. He even won the praises of Vladimir Putin, who was casting aspersions on him before their meeting. And at the end, he said of Joe Biden, quote, he perfectly knows the matter. He is fully concentrated and knows what he wants to achieve, and he does it very shrewdly. And then Putin pushed back on what he characterized as media attempts to cast Biden as physically frail, noting that the 78-year-old president was in great shape, even though their meeting came at the end of a very long and grueling trip that included the G7 and NATO summits and jet lag and more. But the Fox Not News Channel reported something wholly different than what we and apparently Vladimir Putin witnessed. So The Daily Show put together a mashup to help out the Fox fraudsters. The entire world seeing firsthand how weak, how frail, how confused. I don't know what to even tell you that he's trying to say here. Most importantly, we have a lot of good things to talk about and things to talk about. Was asked if he trusted Putin, and he said yes. How could you trust a former KGB agent? I have uh, President Putin. Uh, He just said it's not Russia. I will say this. I don't see any reason why it would be. Got completely confused mid-sentence during a meeting. In a key sentence in my remarks, I said the word would instead of wouldn't. Everybody's getting along, and that's what his goal is. Consensus. Everyone to get along. It's not about what Ameri- what's best for America. Getting along with Russia is a good thing, not a bad thing. And I really think the world wants to see us uh, get along. He gave that stage to Vladimir Putin. The world watched and maybe believed him. I will tell you that President Putin was extremely strong and powerful in his denial today. He let Vladimir Putin run circles around him. He offered to have the people working on the case come and work with their investigators with respect to the 12 people. I think that's an incredible offer. It was always America first, and candidly, uh, that's not the message that Putin got tonight. I think that the United States has been foolish, and I think we're all uh, to blame. This trip has been an utter train wreck. Frankly, I find it embarrassing. I find him embarrassing. But bravo, Daily Show. Good job on that. You know, we've still got a couple minutes, so I'm going to share one more debunking segment with you. This one came from CNN. Yeah, I know. That's two from CNN today. Hmm. Gotta watch that. Anyway, on New Day, Friday morning, Brianna Keeler, who I really like, the new uh, co-host on, on New Day, and John Berman decided to debunk the top conspiracy theories being pushed by Fox and Newsmax and OAN and the and the Republicans in Congress around the January 6th insurrection. It's a public service from CNN. Take it away, John Berman. You see that video with your own eyes. You see that horror with your own eyes. It makes it all the more stunning that some Republicans and some deranged entertainers 
keep developing new and provably false ways to say the insurrection did not happen. What stands in the way of their attempt to whitewash January 6th? Reality. First, the claim that the Capitol attack was just a tour, which is how Republican Andrew Clyde of Georgia describes it, a normal tourist visit. That assumes your idea of a normal tourist visit to the Capitol involves breaking and climbing through a window, rifling through lawmakers' desks, ransacking offices, and beating law enforcement officers. By the way, it was Clyde who barricaded the door to these tourists. Number two, rioters not armed. In the last 24 hours, the Justice Department charging a rioter with unlawfully bringing a semi-automatic handgun onto Capitol grounds. Rioters also use bear spray. They use flagpoles, as you saw there, baseball bats, all of these things to viciously attack police. Number three, January 6th was a peaceful protest. Another offensively absurd claim easily disproved with, you know, pictures. See above, rioters use bear spray, flagpoles, baseball bats to viciously attack police. And number four, a myth. The FBI orchestrated the deadly assault on January 6th. Fox's BS ringmaster Tucker Carlson this week breathing air into this false flag conspiracy theory that originated from a right wing website that has been flagged by social media for being BS. This conspiracy theory is based on references to unindicted co-conspirators in several indictments against Capitol rioters. Legal analysts, including our own Ellie Honig and anyone you will talk to of any sort of merit, have called this legally impossible. Number five, Trump will be reinstated. First it was March, now it's August, a theory that Trump himself is pushing to allies. This is A, absurd, B, impossible, and C, dangerous, and could provoke even more violence. And number six conspiracy theory here, members of left-wing extremist group Antifa infiltrated Capitol rioters. Here is what FBI Director Chris Wray told the Senate Judiciary Committee about this in March. Is there any evidence at all that it was organized or planned or carried out by groups like Antifa or Black Lives Matter? We have not seen any evidence to that effect thus far. Number seven, the theory that fake Trump supporters attended the rally. Here's FBI Director, for, Director Christopher Wray at the same March Senate hearing. Do you have any evidence that the Capitol attack was organized by, quote, fake Trump protesters? We have not seen evidence of that at this stage. And lastly, don't call it an insurrection. Republican Kentucky Congressman Thomas Massey, who is among a group of Republican lawmakers who this week voted against a measure to award congressional gold medals to members of the Capitol Police and the D.C. Metropolitan Police for their bravery, telling The Hill, quote, if they just wanted to give the police recognition, they could have done it without trying to make it partisan, without sticking that in there. Now, by that, he means the truth. The word insurrection, defined by Merriam-Webster as an act or instance of revolting against civil authority or an established government. Here's more of the harrowing video of that day. What else would you call it? Yeah, I told you, opposite world is a real place. And with that, we reach the end of another edition of the broadcast. Brad and Desi will be back for the next one. I'm Nicole Sandler, inviting you to come visit me at NicoleSandler.com. Look around, there's tons of content there with no paywall. And I'll be back here soon, likely sooner rather than later, on the broadcast. Until then, wishing us all good luck, because we need it, and a very happy Juneteenth.